to the Stockouts. This is your show at Freightways about CPG Industries. Those are consumer packaged goods and their supply chains. I'm your host, Mike Bowden. Just still on the head of Intermodal Solutions here at Freightwaves. And in addition to doing uh, things related to rail and intermodal, also follow the consumer packaged goods industry. And every Monday, we set aside 26 minutes to go through uh, what I think those shippers in that very big um, you know, industry want to hear about. And what I have for you today is I'm going to talk through uh, Constellation Brands earnings, which reported last week. It was a little bit of a controversial quarter. And I think there's some trends there that apply not just to Constellation, not just to beer and alcohol um, you know, companies, but also sort of the broader uh, consumer packaged goods companies. So I'll talk through some of those. And then uh, we published a number of articles on FreightWaves.com that I think really hit on uh, various topics that CPG companies want, um, you know, are going to want to hear about, they, that they're going to care about things like uh, truckload carriers, uh, tender acceptance rates, uh, warehousing prices, uh, supply chain you know, finance. Todd Maiden wrote, wrote up an article about that. And then rail car lease rates I can talk through. Um, you know, Greenbrier reported uh, last week, big rail car manufacturer. I can talk a little bit about uh, what they said and what that means for any companies that are leasing or trying to acquire uh, rail cars. So, um, you know, with that, I'll get into the first uh, topic, which is a uh, Constellation Brands experiences continued margin pressure. So, Constellation Brands, we don't know who they are. They are the company that manufactures Corona, Modelo, various wine and and, and liquor. Um, you know, shares were down about ten percent on Thursday. That was the biggest one day decline since March 2020. You can see in the right part of that stock chart. That's a that's a Constellation Brands, uh, you know, stock chart. Ticker STZ, um, you know, fell about ten percent right there on, on Thursday. So, um, you know, had been um, so 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 close to fifty-two week low at, at at this point. And some of the things they talked about was inflation, uh, cutting into beer sales. They tend to target a little bit of the higher, uh, pre, you know, end market, maybe the premium beer market uh, with Corona, Modelo, et cetera. That's you know maybe a cut above what uh, you would get from a Budweiser. And one of the key stats here is the number of cases they sent to distributors increased 5.7% in the quarter. And that's been a slowing from 8 to 9%, which they've seen the past few quarters. Some of the investors like this stock because it um, you know, has revenue growth. I mean, there's only so much uh, earnings growth you can have by cutting costs. At some point, you need to sell you know, more uh, beer in this case, uh, which in, in generally they, they've been doing. Uh, and, and Modelo specifically, they said their growth was 4%. Uh, which compared to 10% in the prior quarter. So still, um, you know, seems like they're, they're, they're growing the volume, uh, growing the sales just at a rate that is less than, um, you know, they had been doing, you know, previously. Uh, the company also uh, said there's going to be continued margin pressure, which I think is something that we're going to see um, in other CPGs as well. Of course, they've gone through a lot of margin pressure the last two years and sort of hoping that at this point we're starting to get out of it. But you listen to a comment like uh, Constellation Brands and they said they have, um, they're expecting eight to nine percent revenue growth and four to five percent operating income growth, which still positive numbers, but you sort of does imply some some margin pressure there. They said the margins are going to be below uh, targeted uh, levels. I think they said uh, operating margins tend to be about forty percent, thirty nine or forty percent. They're going to think, think it's going to be more like thirty eight percent. And some of the things that they called out specifically are um, you know, so the raw materials uh, still higher. They do hedge about 10% of their beer costs. And so it does take a while for some of those hedges to come off, even as um, the, the commodity prices uh, go down. You know, packaging still inflationary. They talked about uh, pr- um, packaging 
uh, products like aluminum and glass, those have come down from their highs still above, uh, you know, pandemic, pre-pandemic levels. Logistics costs are still relatively high for them overall, even though we'll talk about why I think some of those should uh, come down. And then uh, one area of cost that I like that they're doing is, is brewery expansions and uh, marketing. And I think part of the idea is that this company with Corona and Modelo, they do very well um, with Hispanic com- uh, consumers. They do very well in California and kind of the, the, the West Coast, trying to, to push that you know, to more of a nationwide um, you know, sales that's a little bit more widely, um, maybe widely distributed or more of the sales is, is, is more proportional to the population is maybe the better way to, to put it. So making um, some big pushes there and that could, um, you know, impact, you know, near-term results, but those are probably worthwhile uh, investments, um, you know, longer term. So bottom line with um, Constellation is I think there's a limit to the amount of pricing consumers will take. It is interesting how they describe the pricing um, of beer, where they increase the price, you know, a, a, you know, somewhat, and they, you know, see how the consumer reacts to that. Let's say they increase the price four or five percent, and volumes, you know, drop, and and they'll back off a little bit on the, on, on those pricing. So, even though you tend to think of, um, you know, alcohol as being something that's not cyclical, something that consumers don't cut back on, I do think there is some trading down. And um, they said they have had six qu- consecutive quarters of, of market share gains. So that's you know one of the things that, that investors do like about the, the stock is that market share gains. There was some controversy in the um, you know analyst Q and A session where a lot of the analysts were comparing their data to the data from some of the industry uh, you know data sets that are out there in terms of retail sales, things like Nielsen's, things like IRI, and they sort of thought that their sales were disappointing relative to those. Uh, you know, trends company insists it's still you know um, taking market share, uh, but we'll sort of see in the coming uh, you know quarters with Constellation Brands and um, their brands Corona and and Modelo. So uh, some interesting things there. I thought. Uh, moving on to uh, tar- uh, topic number two, tender acceptance at an all time high level for the holidays. So there was an article that Zach Strickland, my colleague, who is the head of Sonar, head of market intelligence, I guess this is his title, wrote up a, a good article sort of talking about how it's, what's uh, taken place with the tender rejection rates. They have a chart on the tender rejection rates, which uh, in 2022 into 23, where we are today, is that white line and carriers are only rejecting uh, 5.1% of, of tenders. And so sort of flip this around, how a CPG company or a big shipper would look at this and they tend to think of it as a tender acceptance rate. So about a 95% acceptance rate, um, you put out 100 tenders, uh, carriers on the contract market accept 95 of them, that's a good place uh, to be. And uh, not having that uh, tender rejection rate uh, increase above 6% or not having the tender acceptance rate fall below 94% over the holiday season was uh, an indicator that the market is loose. So typically over the Christmas season, whether it's a tight mar- uh, market or a loose market, you do see uh, increases in the tender rejection uh, rates. And you saw that in that 2019 period in, in, in blue there, uh, where it went from about 7% to about 14%. And you also saw that in 2021 um, into 2022, where it went from about 22% to about 23% during, you know, from a higher level um, it, during the, the, the Christmas season. So really didn't see an increase to the same extent. And we think that that's really an indicator that 
truckload capacity is loose and that loose truckload capacity will go from uh, what's typically a, a seasonally you know, tight market, which is right around the holiday season to uh, the January and February, which is usually the loosest market uh, seasonally for truckload uh, capacity. Uh, truckload capacity doesn't usually tighten up until about March, where some of that um, early summer merchandise sh- starts to ship in, in, in March. So like the, the you know truckload carriers, their first quarter does tend to be dominated by what happens in, in, in March. But you know this month and next month, expecting uh, transportation markets to be uh, fairly loose. And I think the question becomes is, is are we going to see a typical seasonal tightness in March? Didn't really see it last year. In fact, we saw loosening during March where, where typically you would see tightening and, and that you know caused a lot of our uh, prognostications at FreightWaves, uh, you know, talking about how we expected the truckload market to, to loosen. And, and I think those things really came to, to fruition over the course of uh, the year. Now, in this article um, that uh, you know, Zach Strickland wrote on, on Saturday, you know, Chart of the Week article, also talks about how these um, loosening freight markets are, are somewhat of a double-edged sword for you know, shippers. Yes, it's easier to find and source transportation capacity, but a lot of that is because uh, the sales are down, inventories are too high, the consumer is slowing down. What I would add to that is that CPG companies are in a better sp- uh, place as far as their sales go. Um, you know, CPG kind of the last thing you know people cut back on. Uh, you know, really, what's in a tough spot um, in terms of sales and uh, demand are sort of what we call general merchandise, which um, would be things like hard lines, um, which would include uh, furniture. You know, th- you know, a lot of clothing. Clothing are soft lines, but but the, but you know, things that are more discretionary in nature. Uh, CPG, um, you know, doesn't have the same degree of high inventories. In fact, a lot of the retailers are still working to build up their uh, CPG uh, inventory. So they're in a little bit of a, of, of a better place where CPG demand, you know, yes, talked about how demand is maybe slowing a little bit for a company like Constellation, but, um, you know, still, you know, still growing um, you know, and, and for the most part, um, in a much better spot than most other consumer goods, uh, you know, companies. I also want to talk a little bit about how that translates to uh, freight rates going forward. I have a chart on van contract rates and, and comparing those to uh, the spot rates. And so the, the van contract rates, if we can get that uh, next chart uh, you know, pulled up, uh, you can see that the contract rates are in uh, white and the spot rates are in orange. Uh, the, the van contract rates in white uh, exclude fuel surcharges and the orange uh, rates um, uh, in, which are the spot rates, uh, those have, have undergone a um, you know, mechanism to remove the, the surcharges because fuel is you know, included in most uh, spot rates. And so this is kind of, this is apples to apples, you know, comparison, spot rates above uh, contract rates up until about March of last uh, year. And then they've been lower ever since then. And you see right around the holiday season, spot rates increased from about $2 a mile, excluding uh, fuel on average to about $2.25 and have come down into about $2.21. And so that that spread between uh, contract rates and spot rates, where the contract rates had been higher by a whopping roughly $0.70 cents a mile, they're still higher by about $0.50 cents a mile, still not sustainable. And we view this as um, you know something that's going to cause the contract rates to come down in the coming quarters as more uh, big shippers, 
you know, rebid their freight for the upcoming year, which a lot of those bids take place in the early part of the of the year. So still pretty wide, uh, you know, gap there and uh, shows that contract rates have uh, further to, to fall. I'll move on to uh, topic number three, which is changes in supply chain uh, finance rules could impact uh, shippers. And so this was an article that uh, Todd Maiden wrote, who used to do what I used to do, which he was a sell-side stock analyst, uh, just like I was at a, at a different uh, shop. And you know, he wrote this up, sort of leveraging his exp- expertise uh, with um, you know accounting and uh, financial statement analysis. And so he's he's talking about uh, supply chain finance or reverse factoring, and what that is is it allows the buyers of transportation services, so you know, shippers to utilize that full payment window, let's say it's 30 days, let's say it's 60 days, maybe it's 90 days, and sort of you know, push out you know, when they pay uh, carriers, but it also allows the carriers to get paid right away. And so uh, the, the bank is the one providing that financing. And so the, the bank is basically buying the receivables that is um, an asset for the the, the carriers and um, you know, is paying a discounted rate on those uh, receivables in exchange for you know, paying, making that payment quickly. Uh, the shippers make the same payment; they just um, you know, make it you know, later on in the future. So both carrier and shipper, you know, roughly uh, get what they uh, want, which is to uh, maximize the available cash flow in the near term. And uh, what's changed uh, that Todd uh, describes in this article is that there's been an update to the Financial Accounting Standards Board uh, rule on December 15th, uh, where there's additional disclosure that needs to take place. And the idea is to provide additional transparency uh, to the liabilities that are not on the balance sheet. So, uh, you know, for instance, you know, a shipper, you know, doesn't have to pay for 90 days the their freight costs because of this uh, this reverse factoring you know program that the bank is 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 allowing well they have to disclose that and sort of what the terms uh, are and so there's also you know speculation that the um, financial institutions will stop providing uh, this type of, of financing and that could have a big impact on sort of the smaller carriers that are not as well capitalized as some of the bigger carriers. A lot of those smaller carriers rely on that factoring because they need that cash right away in order to make the payments on their trucks, in order to you know, pay for the insurance, in order to pay the drivers, all, the, all those things. And uh, it could hasten the exit of capacity if banks were to say, well, some of the shippers that are paying us 90 days later, they're not great credit risks. I don't know if I want to front the money you know, for that. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, carriers, you know, won't be able to get paid as quickly. Maybe they won't get paid at all if those shippers are really are bad credit risks. And that could lead to an exit of capacity uh, in the the industry. One of the companies that um, was called out is actually, uh, you know, using this is, is Ball Corporation. That's a company that makes, you know, aluminum cans would consider them a good credit risk. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, uh, shippers that you know, use this, um, you know, may uh, have it less available to them. So just something to keep in mind if you're a CPG uh, company and have to do this, um, it might add a, add a step or might have to um, have a more dramatic change on, on how you um, pay for transportation services. I'll move on to topic number four, which is warehousing market uh, continues to Cool. So, have a chart on logistics managers index for warehousing prices, and this shows that warehousing prices, according to LMI, peaked uh, right around March of last year. Which I feel like I've said March a lot in 
this um, uh, presentation, which uh, you know really was kind of a turning point in a lot of different uh, ways. A warehousing market has you know it included, in fact, in last last March, we looked at uh, what we were writing about uh, warehousing on FreightWaves.com, and we wrote an article, um, and it was Zach Strickland who wrote this article, also uh, citing warehousing prices hit a new all-time high. Uh, and now um, here we are in uh, January of 2023, and evidence suggests that warehousing prices are very much going the other way. Um, you know, we heard this expectation late last year from RJW Logistics Group, who sponsored this show, and I want to say September and October. And their CEO Kevin Williamson was warning that we're just building way too much uh, warehousing capacity. That it's um, you know went from having too little warehousing capacity to uh, building you know too much of, and they would know because they consolidate shipments on behalf of CPG companies. They run it all through their big you know warehousing facility um, that's centralized in uh, Chicago, and uh, the, his uh, the prognostication seems to be coming to fruition here. Uh, there's some interesting quotes from a Wall Street Journal article late last week said that companies. Uh, this is according to Cushman and Wakefield. Uh, that's um, you know, a company that does real estate uh, services. They said companies uh, lease 132 million square feet of industrial space. Um, and that's down 28.2% from the third quarter. So big drop there. And then the, the vacancy rate only ticked up from 3.1% to 3.3%. Mind you, it was about 5% before the pandemic. So it's not like there's a tremendous amount of vacancy yet, but um, shippers are not willing to pay up in order to secure more uh, space. And really the issue is the amount of new uh, warehousing space that is under uh, construction. And another interesting stat from that article is that 83% of new space is being built without tenants, kind of what you would call um, you know, building on spec, sort of build it first and, and you know, build it and hope they will come. And uh, I, I think a lot of that space is going to be um, you know, empty um, in the coming uh, you know, months and years when it comes to, to fruition. So you could have a situation, let's say, uh, you know, a year from now where warehousing space is, is, is really um, you know, inexpensive. I'll move on to topic number five here. Railroads ask courts for a review of new rate dispute rules. Uh, this is something that I can talk about in our show later this week. Uh, I would call a PSR, People Speaking Rail, which I team up with Joanna Marsh. On. And basically, the uh, Service Transportation Board implemented a new rule for small shippers to dispute uh, rate cases. So, you know, railroad shippers, um, you know, that, that only can use one railroad, you know, call those captive shippers, have a hard time, uh, you know, contesting rates, have historically because it's so expensive and time consuming to contest a rate case. That's why it's almost never done. Uh, so the Service Transportation Board implemented a way and they said either all of the railroads can agree to have you know arbitrated decisions for small rate cases that's you know defined as a dispute of up to four million dollars over two uh, years or if they don't all agree what's going to happen is final order arbitration which is the baseball style arbitration so what would happen under that uh, scenario is a shipper provides their best and final offer and the railroad provides their best and final offer and an arbitrator would pick one or the other, and the railroads don't want that. I think that's pretty, you know, clear. Even though that's what they do in in, in Canada, uh, but um, you know, it's likelihood that that the the railroads are going to agree on the uh, you know arbitrated decision um, 
you know, not the final order arbitration, but just a regular arbitration because that would make those cases public. And so um, you don't want to open the floodgates to more to more rate cases. So we'll we'll see. Um, you know, on that, but it seems like the railroads are trying to drag their feet and extend out the time timeline for when these rules get fully implemented. So there is not a tremendous number of uh, rate case disputes uh, this year. So that's something that any CPG that moves um, anything on the railroad, um, I think is going to want to be, you know, aware of maybe with the caveat that anything intermodal is not, is going to be excluded from those, those rate cases, because that's deemed competitive with the, the highway, but um, you know anyone that's moving, uh, you know agriculture uh, inputs. Um, I think are going to be want to be mindful of that. Uh, which leads me to the last uh, topic today is that rail car lease rates are likely to remain high. Um, you know, other thing that, that grabbed my attention last week from a, a, st- a stock price movement, in addition to Constellation Energy or Constellation um, Brands, was. Uh, Greenbrier, which uh, had shares down 18% on Friday, and uh, so dug into that a little bit. And they still say that the demand for newly built rail cars, for leasing rail cars, is still strong. And, uh, you know, sort of all that decline was related to uh, input cost rising, things like material shortage, high cost for, uh, you know, outsourced parts, lingering supply chain issues, all of those things. They did say that they're um, shutting down their Portland. Uh, facility, what they call the Gunderson facility. But what I think is important for, uh, you know, shippers is that, um, you know, this business is maybe becoming a little bit less cyclical. The rail car manufacturing business is, and uh, the companies that manufacture the rail cars have gotten to be bigger in leasing and Greenbrier is one example of that. And so the manufacturers have much, um, you know, more incentive to not overbuild the rail car fleet, uh, in in order because that would ruin their you know leasing you know business. If they manufacture too much, then the lease rates would would come down. But you know from what I'm seeing in the rail car you know leasing market, the um, you know industry is going to be pretty you know judicious about building uh, rail cars this year. I've seen some uh, prognostications that uh, new car delivery is going to be about forty five or forty six thousand. You know, cars this year, that's roughly in line with replacement uh, rate. If you think about 1.6 million cars and it's a 40-year, you know, lifespan. Um, and there were more than 50,000 rail cars retired in the last year. Now, some of those cars were obsolete. There are things like old coal cars that have an old, uh, you know, design. Um, but for the most part, utilization is pretty strong. And uh, there's not a lot of rail cars in storage, um, maybe with the exception of small cube covered hoppers, which were overbuilt uh, in order to move frac sand and general purpose uh, DOT 111 cars, which I think are obsolete uh, based on the current safety standards as would have to be retrofitted uh, with the latest uh, you know, safety standard. But um, you know, lease rates expected to increase you know, pretty much across the board. And um, you know, Greenbrier was talking about having uh, orders to build new rail cars that extend out into 2024. So um, you know, it's not a situation where the rail car, um, you know, uh, buyers can get a, a car, you know, very quickly unless they're really a good, uh, you know, buyer. Sort of in my experience following these uh, companies is that when backlogs are long, lease rates tend to be high to, to lease rail cars and tend to stay high because there's just not as much, you know, competition. If I'm a, if I'm a shipper and I want to lease a rail car, the the manufacturing is not as much of a competition if that those manufacturing backlogs are out 
a number of months. So that's something um, that you know could ca- could cause continued uh, um, logistics costs uh, for you know some of the big uh, you know shippers. And so those are really kind of the, the issues I wanted to go over. You know, this uh, week uh, for anyone that does anything related to the railroads, I would encourage you to check out the new show that I just launched with Joanna Marsh. It's called uh, PSR or People Speaking Rail, which takes place on Thursday at three o'clock Eastern time. And what we typically do there is go through the articles that Joanna has published on FreightWaves.com. And I can talk about what I'm seeing in the intermodal data. Um, And so the idea is to have 26 minutes, you know, there's the the graphic uh, there. Um, It was a great job by our your production team to, to to pull that together. You see the people speaking rail on a on a box car, and so kind of the idea is twenty six minutes. Anyone who ships rail, involved in the rail at, at all, um, gets you know everything they need to know in uh, that amount of time. So with that, um, hope everyone had uh, has going to have a good day, um, and would encourage you to sign up also for the Stockout uh, newsletter for those interested in CPG companies, which you can do at www.freightwaves.com uh, forward slash the stockout. It's under newsletters and it's the first one there under uh, supply chains. And while you're there, um, maybe go to freightwaves.com forward slash subscribe and see what other newsletters um, are relevant to you. And um, you know, that's really all I had today and hope everyone has a great day.